name is Rod. I'd like to add my welcome to all the previous welcomes. And um, before I say what we're doing, let's pray. Loving God, I want to thank you. Thank you for this community. Thank you for um, for there being a place where I feel safe, um, and I hope it is a place of safety for for most of us here. Um, a place where it's okay to bring bring all of who we are. And I pray today as we we talk about. The Beatitudes, as we talk about those who hunger and thirst for justice, that you will um, open us up to um, the hunger and the thirst that those around us have, um, that we might be aware of our own hunger and our own thirst, and that we might um, connect with, with you, our God, who desires justice and who wants to satisfy. Amen. Um, so, sorry, there was, I should have given a spoiler alert for the prayer um, because we are doing the Beatitudes. I gave that away. Um, this is our Lent series. Um, and it just we're just really lucky that um, it occurred to us to do the Beatitudes because lots of other people... We're doing it for Lent, um, other websites and people that we like. Um, and it occurred to us just in time to start and finish at Easter time. So we're really lucky. Um, and another great coincidence, Holy Spirit thing, um, was that it's community lunch and we're talking about hunger and thirst. So how about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so today... We're up to number four. Just a quick thing, because, you know, at, by the time you get to number four, you might be feeling like, oh, this, some of these themes are quite repetitive. Uh, we're kind of talking around the same kinds of um, topics. And um, so just a note to, to begin with. Um, one of my favorite atheists, Alain de Botton has a great book called Religion for Atheists. And in that book, he talks about education and the fact that universities, modern secular universities, have a lot to learn from religions about how to educate people. Um, because if you assume that people are these kind of super rational beings who can hear something once and just assimilate it and then act upon it and then move on to the next thing, then you're just going to teach them new things every week, expecting that they'll just build those things up into an encyclopedic knowledge of something that they'll then act upon. Um, and Alain de Botton says it's just not, it doesn't work that way. Learning doesn't work that way. It never has. And that religions through their ancientness have worked out that the only way that we learn things is by being told the same thing over and over and over again until it sinks into our bones. So um, that's just a way of saying forgive us if we're a bit repetitive in this series. So 
with this beatitude, I want to begin with uh, a reflection on hunger and thirst. And I want you to try and think whether at any point in your life up to now, you have ever felt really acute hunger and thirst. Um, Especially if that, rather than that being a preparation for surgery or, um, you know, 40-hour famine or something like that, whether that's been something where you weren't really sure when it was going to end. I had this one, one experience when I was traveling. I was quite a bit younger and um, I was sort of halfway through a nine-month trip when my credit card uh, expired. And um, it was long enough ago that I had traveler's checks. Remember those? anyone. Um, So I had traveler's checks and I worked out if I withdrew a lot of money just before my credit card expired, I might be able to get through the rest of my trip. Anyway, I got to to Argentina and I traveled across to Uruguay and um, I used up all the cash that I had and then on a Friday I traveled back to Argentina, to Buenos Aires, and I had Nothing but my traveler's checks, but I thought, it's a Friday, that's fine, all the banks will be open, I'll just cash some traveler's checks, I'll be fine. But um, it was embarrassing to admit this, being a pastor, but uh, it happened to be Good Friday, and I didn't realize. And I don't know if you know anything about Holy Week for Latin Americans, but it's pretty intense, and everything was shut, everything was shut. So I arrive um, in this big city with no money and... um, finding it almost impossible to find anywhere that's even open. No one would cash my checks. And I talked to people and they said, well, things are pretty much shut for the whole week. Um, so I was you know, looking down the barrel of a week of absolutely no money and going, what am I going to do? Luckily, you may not realize this, but I'm white. And I speak English and I have an Australian passport. So I just went to a hostel um, in San Telmo, which is a really cool tango area. And I went in and said, here's my situation. Can I stay for the next week on credit and I'll pay you at the end of it? And they said, sure. And then I went to my room and there was an English guy there and I explained my situation to him and I said, can I borrow a few hundred dollars? And he said, sure. And the reason I tell this story is... Um, because that's about as close as I've ever got to experiencing hunger with no clear point where it was going to end or where it wasn't just voluntary. And it was a result of my own stupidity, nothing other than that. And it was something that could be remedied almost instantly by the fact that I'm a person of privilege. And it's so unjust that that is the case because for most of the world, they don't have any of those things. The hunger that they experience is not through stupidity. It's not that they just happen to be traveling in a country that they don't know. They spend their entire lives surrounded by friends and family, everyone wanting the best for them and wanting to support them in every way possible, but they still can't avoid 
hunger and thirst. And not being people of privilege, yeah, they don't have the white card to play. They don't have the passport to show. And so they are hungry and thirsty most of the time. This to me is why Jesus linking hunger, thirst, and justice is so brilliant. Because hunger, thirst, and injustice are always connected. As relatively wealthy city dwellers, um, we often don't notice how much generally the Bible talks about food and land, but they're constantly there. For people in an agrarian economy, paradise equaled land and food. And as we've talked about in the last few weeks, um, for people not just in an agrarian economy, but occupied by a foreign power, there would have been just so much hunger and so much thirst. But looking back again uh, to the Exodus story, um, we see there in the story of, of Israel leaving leaving Egypt and going through the wilderness. Again, an incredible focus on hunger and an incredible focus on thirst. Pretty much all of the complaints of Israel were about food and water. Um, and pretty much all the kind of miraculous acts were around food and water, providing quails, providing manna, um, Moses hitting a rock and water gushing out of it. We also see the Israelites fantasizing about returning to Egypt. Um, and again, the focus of their fantasy is food. You know, we'll be able to have eggplant. And how is Canaan described? How is the promised land described by the people of Israel, by Moses as they head towards it? It's a land of milk and honey. What is milk and what is honey? Milk is fat and honey is sugar. What do you crave most when you're starving? Fat and sugar. These are the things that give you sustained energy and give you instant energy. These are the things that you desperately crave. But they're things, all of this is stuff that we, we miss because we, we read the Bible as people who are completely out of touch with land, completely out of touch with nature, completely out of touch with hunger. And thirst. In fact, most of us have exactly the opposite relationship with fats and sugars. <laughs> so what is, it's interesting to reflect on what our relationship is then with, um, with food. In a way, uh, food has come, become for us, uh, rather than a place where we as human beings connect with all other human beings by the shared need, it's become a place of numbness or distraction. 
we've turned hunger into something to do with obsession with novelty and pleasure. We're the master chef phenomenon. So we're constantly pursuing new and better eating and drinking experiences while never having time to reflect or experience real hunger and thirst. So the question today, I guess, is um, what do we do about this? What do we do about um, our own obliviousness to hunger and thirst? What do we do about the fact that we've turned food rather than it being a place of connection with the rest of humanity? It's something which, which distracts and numbs and um, makes us oblivious. How can we change our relationship with food? How, how can we re- change our relationship with the idea of hunger and thirst so it can be a means by which we connect with the rest of humanity and it can become a means by which we connect with the issue of justice? So that's a real question. What do we do? Any thoughts? You've touched on something very close to my heart because um, I think subtly out there there's um, Coles and Woolworths, etc., etc., and I'm sorry for anyone who is shareholders with them, but but they're throttling the they're throttling the farmers. So we've got to think back to where does this produce come from? How is it farmed? Um, we need ethical farming. You know, when we get a plague of locusts overhead, go these planes that spray poison all around us. Um, we have a lot of diseases today, which I think can be attributed to poisonous sprays that we're quite unaware of. So we need to know. I think we need to educate ourselves. And um, I'm, I'm just all for farmers' markets. I have a beautiful time every Sunday morning. It's a social thing as well as a shopping ethically. Um, you get to talk to them. It comes from Victoria. Yes, you can't always get things out of season, so you don't make the fancy dishes, but you know, I'm getting a bit old for that anyway. So, yes, look, I think we really need to be conscientious also that our water table is drying up. There's so much connected to food and the just the farmers are being squeezed off their land, the mining companies, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, a lot of, um, a lot of the theologians recently have talked a lot about the fact that we need to extend our notion of, of justice beyond other people to, to animals and to the land and to water, to everything. And that's the, the, the thing about food is that food and where food comes from and the soil, it's, everything is connected and it is um, a wonderful way into um, understanding our, our connectedness um, and understanding the need for us to be kind to the earth and not just each other. I think it's interesting because when I first read that sentence, I think, oh, it's all about righteousness and I wasn't really thinking about righteousness within thinking about issues of food and and water. Um, and I guess when I was young growing up, 
we sort of watched all sorts of images to do with uh, particularly some of the um, eastern nations of Africa, um, people starving, and, and I, I thought initially it was all to do with drought. And, um, yeah, the more you sort of read and find out and learn about things, there's huge amounts of injustice to do with um, politics affecting that and also to do with things like seeds being... Um, Oh, I guess genetically engineered and and owned by people rather than sort of shared. So there's huge amounts of issues to do with actual righteousness within food and water use and sharing. Um, just read the news this morning. It's actually from the 28th of February, but um, just saw that um, South Africa has voted to take confiscate the land of white farmers. That's pretty like, well, is that justice? It's uh, tricky in Zimbabwe, that's for sure. Thanks, Terry ann um, I agree with all of these points. Um, but one thing that I've thought about, uh, my background, a bit of science degree, is that uh, we found out that to support the growing population, you need GMO food and I guess the, the things that maybe we don't want on our plants and produce and whatnot, and I guess sometimes when we speak about this, maybe we need to consider whether we're aware of that or whether we're willing to sacrifice, I don't know, food for that. Um, and also, I worked at Pro uh, Woolworths for a little bit, and the customers would come in and no one would buy an apple that had a tiny bruise in it, no one would buy a banana that looked a bit weird, like, I think it's up to us as well to show that we're willing to buy things like that too, as opposed to, I don't know, saying that maybe we will, we should. Yeah, we, we have Harriet in our community as well who worked for Coles. So, yeah, we're connected. It's all right. <laughs> she was trying to work on sustainability for them. Um, I remember I was working at a, at a hospital in the eastern suburbs and um, this lady came in and was like, uh, her, first uh, her first language wasn't English. And she came in and just um, explained that suddenly came just hadn't eaten <laughs> for about 24 hours. And so I guess we really aren't familiar with the experience of hunger pains. And sometimes it's enough to take someone in an emergency department to fix it. Um, two quick points from me. I, I think there's a real place to bring back almost the lost art of hospitality. So for me, um, I almost can't think of a greater spiritual... Actually, that's not true. Um, but I think a great spiritual practice um, um, is just simply um, hospitality, bringing people together, and in particular, um, you know, a divergent, unlikely group of people around a table um, of home-cooked food. Um, I think that's really precious and... And it's something of a lost art. And the second point, people have touched on it, but there's such a relationship between food and justice, and particularly around meat production. Um, you know, it takes 19 kilograms of grain to produce one kilogram of meat. It takes a whole lot more water to produce meat than it does grain. And about a third of the world's grains are going into meat production to feed 
the privileged. Um, and, and so, yeah, yeah, that's a giant issue for me in terms of, um, yeah, food and ethics and justice. Um, I just wanted to tag on to your first point. Um, I did some work well, a couple of years ago with, um, it's called the, it was up in Seymour, it's called the Seymour Flexible Learning Centre with kids who didn't work, didn't work in the school system. Um, and they were all the kids that kind of gone in and out of juvie and weren't doing so well. And I was just like a relief teacher there. I spent a fair bit of time there. And um, part of what I had to do was take cooking classes with them. Um, and we would just like make basic things with them. And then at lunchtime, we would all have a meal together. And the first time I did it, I didn't really understand why so many of them were feeling a little bit awkward or anxious about it. And some of them just wouldn't sit around the table. And I chatted to some of the supervisors and they were saying, this act of them sitting around a table sharing a meal together is so foreign and it's so, it's, um, it is anxiety provoking for them because they have to, they're eating and they're looking at each other and having a conversation with each other and that is just something that is so foreign to them and something they've never grown up with and just a gross injustice that we just take for granted. Um, yeah. Just one quick thing is I think the flip side of hospitality is fasting. I think fasting is, you know, obviously it was something that was around in Jesus' time um, and it is um, something that was a, was a spiritual practice back then. And I think there are, yeah, there are lots of reasons for us to think about fasting as a way of um, connecting with the experience of hunger, of trying to break that mindlessness in terms of our relationship with food, um, and it's really good for your your inflammation as well. So, but I, I do it I do it once a week, um, just from dinner through to lunch. Like it's a very simple practice, um, but it I find it yeah just really powerful just to get up one morning a week and go. I'm not going to have breakfast this morning, and I'm going to make that a time just to reflect on how much of the world uh, experience hunger, miss meals, miss many meals and have no choice about it. Um, and obviously that is, in a sense, a symbolic consciousness-raising act and much more is re required in terms of actually meeting those needs. But I think anything, anything that we do that can kind of just break that unconscious relationship that we have with food. And I think hospitality and fasting, they're both practices that have that, that potential um, to just shift, subtly shift our relationship with, with food. Share a little bit of a story. In uh, 1999, I ended up on the streets while living in a car down in St Kilda near the near the gardens there and slept in my car for close to six months and being without food and not knowing how to get any money when um, you weren't eligible for it um, was quite challenging to say the least and um, I know that I was that hungry at that time I'd never experienced in my life and um, I ended up taking amphetamines to take the hunger away because it was cheaper than food. Well, that's so I thought. 
plus the pain that I had and was experiencing at the time, um, the only thing that seemed to make me feel happy back then. So knowing what it feels like is, yeah, pretty, still pretty raw, actually. So it's you know, knowing that those people that are living on the streets of Melbourne or around, around Victoria, what they do to um, try and keep themselves alive or keep themselves um, from being hungry why there are people that go out and actually feed people that are living on the street and, instead of actually judging them. Yeah, I, I guess the one other point that, that I wanted to make, and I guess it echoes Terry Ann's point, is that it's not just about people out there, people in other countries, but it's also justice issues, hunger issues that are in our own city. I work with um, foreign students who've come over here to learn English and then to go on to, to full-time study. Um, and a lot of them are from reasonably privileged backgrounds where they come from, but coming here um, to a country that is just so much more expensive and where they're studying and the conditions of their visa mean that they can only work a certain amount and they're paying huge amounts into fees to study. Um, and a lot of them end up working in the kitchens of restaurants in our own city, cash in hand, earning almost nothing, um, just barely getting by, quite hungry themselves. And it is, um, yeah, it's easy for us, I, I guess, to, to perhaps donate money to charities that are working overseas and yet mindlessly go to the same cafe every day and not be aware at all of the working conditions of these people that are serving us every day and that perhaps they are being exploited, perhaps they are hungry, perhaps they are um, experiencing extreme injustice. Uh, so it's, um, I guess it's at, it's at every, every level um, for us that we need to, um, to raise our consciousness about about this. I just want to quickly read a quote. Can we have the next slide? Um, oh, no, yeah, we'll talk about this one very quickly. Can we go back to that one? Sorry. Um, the, sorry, no, the third slide. Thanks. Um, this is one for the Spanish speakers. Uh, <laughs> so the, de nada just means you're welcome. Um, and the joke is, are they saying Jesus or are they saying Jesus? So it's an, it, for the American context, it's like, thank you, Jesus, for this food. Thank you, Jesus, for this food. All the food that Americans eat comes largely from farms where the people working there are Mexican um, migrant workers who are working illegally, risking deportation if they're caught. And this is um, just a massive, massive issue them. So I love this cartoon, just um, the mindless thanking of Jesus for food when, in, when we're implicit in these terrible systems of exploitation often and it's not enough just to say thanks Jesus for our food. We need to know about our food. We need to know where it comes from. But yeah, the last, the last slide is a quote from John Deere, D-E-A-R, for those listening. Um, <laughs> Not, not the tractor guy. Um, I'm just going to read this quote. Jesus instructs us to be passionate for social, economic, and racial justice. 
That's the real meaning of the Hebrew word for justice and the Jewish insistence on it. Resist systemic, structured, institutionalized injustice with every bone in your body, with all your might, with your very soul, Jesus teaches. Seek justice as if it were your food and drink, your bread and water, as if it were a matter of life and death, which it is. Within our relationship to the God of justice and peace, those who give their lives to that struggle, Jesus promises, will be satisfied. So the thing I want to finish with is I want to finish with the last line of that quote, that those that engage in this struggle will be satisfied. Um, Because it's important that we don't forget the second half of this beatitude. Um, That obviously if we're we're engaging in the struggle for justice so that everyone might be satisfied in terms of their physical hunger and thirst, but there is... It's also a dimension of satisfaction for those of us who fight for justice as well. Um, A form of satisfaction, a form of joy that comes from aligning ourselves with what God is doing in the world. And we should expect joy in this struggle. If if we're working for justice in a way that leads to exhaustion and despair and bitterness, then it's almost better that we don't embark on this struggle at all. Of course, there will be moments. There are always moments of exhaustion. There are always moments where we feel bitter and frustrated and paralyzed. But that that must not be our default state as we fight for justice. Richard Rohr, who we often talk about in this community, a Franciscan friar in the States, he runs the Centre for Action and Contemplation. And he, he often warns people that if you engage in, in action, in activism, without contemplation, without prayer, without connecting to God, then that's a very dangerous road, a road towards bitterness and a road towards despair. Um, But that if we engage in contemplation and reflection and meditation without activism, then that's equally as empty. We need both. We must remain very kind to ourselves as we fight for justice, as, as we seek to be God's hands in bringing about justice. As one of our other patron saints, John O'Donohue, would say, we need to be excessively gentle with ourselves. Or as the um, Vietnamese Buddhist teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, says, we need to take ourselves onto our own laps sometimes. I listened to... um, a podcast, an episode of uh, Rob Bell's podcast this week where he interviewed um, a guy called Levi Gardner who was also a gardener. And um, Levi Gardner recommends planting things. He says, planting things, growing things can be an amazing antidote to paralysis and depression about the state of the world. 
And this is also why we need to do this as a community. Uh, we need to do this together because often we don't notice when we are slipping into despair, when we're slipping into bitterness. It's often those alongside us that notice it first and that can put a hand on our shoulder and look into our eyes and tell us to rest, to remind us that beneath everything, beneath all the activity is, is grace and belovedness. So in a minute we're going to to move into communion and I'm going to pray. But were there any final, just I guess especially focusing on that last point of trying trying to be people who seek God's justice in a way where we are kind to ourselves and in a way where we um, seek joy. Is there any final thoughts on that? I'm just reminded of in Hebrews it talks about Jesus enduring the cross for the joy that was set before him, that even the cross Jesus faced at that with this expectation of joy. A strange kind of joy, but joy nonetheless. Did anyone have any final final comments or questions? I think as we're leading into communion, there's an extraordinary uh, satisfaction that God gives us to our hunger and thirst in offering himself. And that's the, that's the extraordinary meal that we can share together and I can't think of a better way of being satisfied in that. Absolutely. Anyone else before we finish? Yes, I just um, want to emphasise what you just said about being carrying joy and being careful. Um, I think for me, who who's breaking new ground in her understanding of God and of Jesus and of um, justice and injustice and and the narrowness of that I've grown up with in the church um, get with other Christians and I find myself getting a bit riled underneath <laughs> and it's no good. It's not going to do any good, in fact. So it, I love the fact of being reminded of coming together with a community that's loving and caring and, and reaches out to me and embraces this older woman and can feel that gentleness and go away and, and realise that God didn't ask me to change the world um, and that being angry and upset about it isn't the way. that it is, it, It's just you've got to be really sensitive to how do, how do I speak. And uh, so I just want to talk about, I just want to confirm or affirm that contemplation and that's the other path that, that God's been taking me down is, is centering prayer where you empty your mind for a person who's really got a mind that rattles on all the time um, and always thinking of what you're going to say next to empty yourself of thoughts. Um, We were sitting on Friday night with people in this same situation and even my husband said to me he was proud that I didn't have to say something. So, yeah, it's true. It's really true. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. And I love the um, that idea of taking yourself onto your own lap and soothing and comforting yourself. And, and I think that's often the child that we were, of forgiving that child for the way that they were, particularly perhaps forgiving that adolescent or early 20s version of ourselves that we look at with such shame um, and such embarrassment 
and to go, no, I can forgive that version of myself. And if, I, if I'm unable to forgive that version of myself, then I'm not going to be able to engage with people that are like me now. Um, so, yeah, it's incredibly important work. Sally. Yeah, you've just made me realise with the service today that... Um, so I worked in the area of justice for nine years, working alongside women uh, working on the streets and also young women being exploited sexually. And I, I just didn't realise how much joy and satisfaction they, that gave me. And, of course, it gave me so much exhaustion and probably bitterness and anger and frustration, but just so much satisfaction. Um, and so I stopped doing that to have a baby... And I just, it has just robbed me of so much in my life. And so I sat with Ruth this morning talking about her work and the change that she's bringing about to people's lives um, through the advocacy that she does for people with disability. And I was just so jealous. I was so envious. And, um, yeah, so you – and it affected my faith. And I often have these dreams where I'm starving. Sorry, my voice is shaking. But I have these dreams where I'm starving and I wake up and I'm not hungry – but I'm, it's a thirst and a hunger for the fight for justice that I'm missing. Thanks, Sally. I love this community. Oh, my iPad's still alive, so that's also a blessing. Um, where were we? I'll have a drink of water now. It's Michael, isn't it? Yeah, I just want to just, as we, as we move to communion, I wanted to just go back to what Michael was saying because um, it's, it's important to remember that this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus going up onto the mountain just like Moses did. Um, and rather than receiving the law as Moses did, Jesus on his own authority is giving the new law to the people who in this instance are not at the bottom of the mountain terrified but are welcomed up to the top of the mountain with Jesus. And just like Moses, he's saying to people who are effectively experiencing slavery and starvation and brutality, he's saying God will provide for you. God will provide for your hunger and your thirst. And yet, in this instance, it's not quail and manna, but it is Jesus' own body that is the food and the drink. And it's an incredibly mysterious thing that this ultimate act of injustice, crucifixion, is in some mysterious way the food and drink that leads to justice. I don't really understand it, but I love it. Um, so let's celebrate it now. I'll just welcome you, invite you up to the newly positioned. Mm.